It's now time to go around the nation in Division Three football. And here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. Very nearly had somebody shock the world this week as uh, Wartburg had a 17-point lead going into the fourth quarter. Wisconsin-Whitewater came back to win. And yeah, the national semifinals, fairly purple as uh, they tend to be of late in Division Three football. Pat Coleman along with Keith McMillan as we take you through the uh, national quarterfinals, talk about the semifinals. We'll also talk uh, with people who were on site at each of the four games on a Saturday afternoon, get their take and uh, kind of pick their brains about what's the important outcomes for Mount Union, Whitewater, and also Wesley and Linfield, who all advanced to the national semifinals on a Saturday with quarterfinal wins. But Keith, the uh, the game, which of course had the spotlight to itself, it was the only one o'clock game, uh, so it was the last game going on for quite some time, uh, has to be the one in which uh, Whitewater almost got knocked off. Um, you know, Keith, you were uh, looking for somebody to actually back up the uh, talk on Twitter about shocking the world, and Warburg almost did it. Well, yeah, you look for that because, of course, you hear that not just every week this time of year, but but almost every week during the season when, when it's somebody um, playing Mount Union, playing Whitewater. Everybody wants to shock the world. They give those teams their best shot. And uh, it doesn't often turn out as well as it looked for, for three quarters for Wartburg. They had their offense working literally from the first minute of the game. Took them 57 seconds, I think, to get on the board. Um end up kicking a bunch of field goals, which which probably came back to hurt him. But there was a point on Saturday where it looked like Wartburg had this in the bag. It was 33-16. Uh, Whitewater was, was, was struggling offensively. And uh, you just didn't envision, even if Whitewater could dig deep, and, and certainly I don't think anybody questioned their heart, you just didn't see a way they were going to be able to move the ball down the field. And then suddenly it, it happened pretty quickly. Not only did they get the big 57-yard touchdown run from Dennis Moore, turn around, cause a fumble, get the ball back, um, you know, score quickly in, in four plays with a, a quick pass to Derek Junikin. And at that point, the ball starts rolling downhill. There's about 13 minutes left in the game. And at that point, those two quick touchdowns turned the momentum and changed the, the rest of the postseason l- kept alive the possibility, of course, that, that we could see yet another Warhawks, Purple Raiders, Stag Bowl. And uh, we will talk more with uh, Josh Smith, our Around the West writer and also a writer for the Daily Jefferson County Union uh, in the Whitewater area. More about this in a little bit. But, you know, basically, Keith, um, you did, uh, Logan Schrader, who's on the short list for West Region Offensive Player of the Year, uh, he's the Warburg quarterback. You know, we've talked about Warburg uh, quite a bit going back to the beginning of the season, especially uh, when they played Bethel, and then of course they ran the table. But uh, if you know, if Schrader doesn't go down, I don't think we're having this conversation, or at least we're having it pretty much in the mirror from the exact opposite perspective. Yeah, I'm not sure I agree with that, and I know that was a popular sentiment, but I think the 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 point where the game turned came before. Uh, Schrader went out with the injury and certainly once Whitewater got the lead and Schrader came back into the game and he wasn't himself and uh, you know his mobility is is a big factor Um, the way he threw the ball when he came back in I don't know if he if he wasn't planning well but but his um, his throws were a little off certainly it wasn't the same and it and it took a little bit of the air out of the sails of what could have been you know, an epic final drive, or at least an interesting final drive, and and it just wasn't. Whitewater shut the door, um, but the 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 they turned the game before Schrader went out. It was really those two plays right at the start of the fourth, the Dennis Moore run, and then uh, and then Schrader was sacked on a second down, and the fumble was recovered by Zach Nellis at the twenty-seven, and then four plays from there, it was Brent. Uh, Barrett to uh, to Derek Junikin, the big tight end rumbling in from 16 yards out. Those two plays, I thought, really turned the momentum from the point where it was 33-16 to 33-30, and at that point, it was it was anybody's game. Uh, uh, Kumaro had a had a good game, uh, obviously offensively, but also. Uh, you know, obviously six catches for 146 yards and a touchdown, uh, but also coughed up the ball inside the five-yard line, uh, which, uh, you know, uh, thwarted a potential whitewater scoring drive. Uh, we saw Justin Howard have a big game. In the keys to the game stuff that we were throwing out on Twitter before the game, one of the things that I threw out there was that Warburg could not allow both Kumaro and Howard to have big games, and they combined for, let's do my math fast, 240 yards and three touchdowns through the air. 
Yeah, and, and the tough thing about them is they're they're very different receivers. Kumaro's a big six five guy. He can go down the field. He'll go up and get the ball. And Justin Howard is just so quick. Um, you know, I guess good feet. You know, I'm not a scout, but but I mean, I remember the the second touchdown catch where he just runs a runs a slant or a, you know a quick post and catches it in the back of the end zone, has to get his feet down inbounds. Maybe not quite reminiscent of, of the Blake Elliott catch in the, in the stag ball going back to, uh, to 2003, but, I'm, I'm, uh, but I'm a, sorry. that kind of, that kind of thing. If, if you didn't see it, it was a very, uh, very nice catch in the back of the end zone. I'm sorry, Keith. Uh, officially that was not a catch by Blake Elliott in the 2003 stag ball. Uh-huh. Well, <laughs> there was a, a great photo taken, probably by Ryan Coleman or one of our uh, I think by, uh, I think by Todd Allred, if I remember correctly. I thought it may have been Todd as well, and I wanted to give Todd credit um, for, for that, but I wasn't sure who took it. In any case, uh, the photo showed that he was in, and 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 there was a catch like that on Saturday from from Justin Howard. So he's a very different receiver from uh, from Jake Kumaro, and those two are a handful. Uh, for anyone, but really, when you're when you're trying to stop Whitewater, I think you're trying to stop that running game in Warburg. For all they were doing successfully on offense, they were also doing a great job defensively, um, making it tough for Whitewater to move the ball. And it's it's really a, a shame for them and for every other school across the country that wants to see someone besides one of the Purple Powers. And even if you consider. Linfield and Wesley as, as sort of two of the regular same old same old faces here in the semifinals for for everyone around the country who wanted to see someone new break through uh, to, to the next round Warburg had it in their hands and, and just let it slip through. Uh, kudos to Warburg for a great season. Uh, obviously, you know, getting off to the 12 and 0 start, really starting with the uh, the win in the playoffs last year, uh, carrying that momentum over. Um, you know, heard they had a, a great crowd at Perkins Stadium at Whitewater. A lot of people made the trip. Warburg's second trip to the quarterfinals. The last one was also at Whitewater in 2008. So I think we will be uh, still talking about Warburg. Uh, next year, maybe not in uh, necessarily in week 14 next year, but you know, who knows? Because a lot of those uh, key players are back, including some names we've already mentioned here uh, in this podcast. Uh, Keith, like I said, we're going to be talking about all of these games coming up. So um, why don't we skip ahead to game balls and then we'll kind of go through the rundown of each game. All right. Well, well, I guess we, I did it backwards then because I think I would have given my, uh, or I think I will give my game ball to uh, to Dennis Moore for that that game changing run. Um, I also think though Whitewater defense deserves a lot of credit, and this is an an odd way to to recognize somebody, but um, they tightened up in the in the red zone, and uh, you know give they were giving up long drives early in the game to Warburg. Everything Warburg was doing was working. Warburg was dictating the tempo of the game, which they liked to do. They were um, Really, you know, coming through on third down, they they were had their creative uh, style of offense going, and and Whitewater couldn't get off the field until they got backed up in their own end zone. And if and, and just if I may run down these drives really quickly early in the game, after Warburg scores on that 57, 57 second six play drive, um, they went thirteen plays, kicked a twenty nine yard field goal. Whitewater scores. Then uh, Warburg goes seven plays, kicks a 31-yard field goal. They go 12 plays, kick a 24-yard field goal, and go 11 plays and kick another 24-yard field goal. And at that point, it's 19-6. to Warburg has scored on its first five possessions, but only led by 13 points. And then when uh, when Whitewater got a touchdown pass to Kumaro, uh, they made it 19-13 and end up going in the half 19-16, only down three. So uh, the, the point I'm making there is that even when Whiteberg was getting – Whiteberg um, – Whitewater was getting seemingly rolled out of the game. The defense tightening up there. Uh, I guess they get to split split the game ball with Dennis Moore because they they tightened up in the red zone. And then of course after Moore got that run, Nellis recovers the fumble. They got the quick touchdown to Jenikin. Um, the defense knocks Logan Schrader out of the game, and and it, there there really was no question uh, at that point that that Whitewater was going to come back and win. By the way, I have to throw out some props to Michael Bulky, the uh, Warburg kicker, who every time I saw him this year seemed to struggle. Uh, you know, you mentioned all those uh, all those field goals. You know, if you had uh, told me at the before the game that uh, they were going to line up and try to kick four field goals in the first uh, twenty five minutes of the game, I would have thought that they would have missed at least one of them. And and yeah, you know, kicking is is 
a dicey proposition in, in D3 and, and to have someone come through for you um, in that many times is actually a pretty big deal uh, for, for a, a, a elite team and, and a semi-elite team, I guess I should say. Uh, my game ball, I'm going to give uh, to, out to Tyree Coleman, no relation, the senior defensive end for Hobart, who had six tackles for loss in the uh, in the game against Wesley and also had, let's see, a pair of sacks to give him. That would be a total of 51 for his career. That would be second all-time in the, the Division Three sack leaderboard. Now, I, I do have to know, of course, the NCAA didn't count uh, sacks until 2000. So this is a, a compressed uh, set of Division Three history, but still second most. Uh, he passed Stephen Wilson of Kings, uh, a player who you and I know well, Keith, uh, who was a two-time All-American for D3Football.com back in 2001-2002. And uh, Mike Sherwin of Waynesburg with 53 and a half is the, uh, is, remains the all-time leader. And I'm just going to pretend that I pronounced that correctly, but in case I didn't, it's spelled C-Z-E-R-W-I-E-N. That's uh, well, for Waynesburg. And, and for all the plays that, that Tyree Coleman did make on Saturday, and he certainly uh, wreaked havoc on, uh, on Wesley's offensive line, was in the backfield quite, quite a lot. And for people who uh, didn't get a chance to watch any or all of that game, you know, you look at the 41-13 score and you, and you think it was a blowout. But, um, but there was a point when this was a 20-13 to 13 game and uh, Wesley has the ball late in the third quarter. The drive starts at the 536 mark. Um, and second and 10, Callahan drops back. He's sacked by Coleman. And the ball is bouncing around. And, uh, and Wesley, I believe it was one of their guards, I think it was the offensive line, who recovered it. But anyway, Coleman has, has you know, bust through, uh, sacks Callahan, the ball comes loose. And they, if they pick up that ball there, that ball is at about the 23-yard line. Hobart had just scored. They, had, they have uh, you know, probably momentum. Maybe they punch in a touchdown and it's a tie game. Instead, um, the Wesley recovers. They're able to punt. Uh, they trade possessions, and then Wesley's next possession, uh, Callahan hits a 60-yard touchdown pass to uh, to Steve Kadosu, and they they break the game open. There was also a big catch on that drive uh, by Bryce Shade um, for for 17 yards, but um, they 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 break the game open, and there was that point in that game um, where Hobart really had a chance to to either tie it or keep it close, and it was a it was a great almost play by Tyree Coleman, and he just came up a little bit short, and I bet. I bet if we asked him for all the plays he did make on Saturday, that which one does he think about most? I, I wouldn't be surprised if he brought up the one that he almost almost changed the game. Now we welcome in Frank Rossi, D3Football.com contributor and host of In the Huddle, the weekly show covering the Liberty League in East Region. He and Gordon Mann were our broadcast team at the Wesley Hobart game. And uh, Frank, uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Pat. Great to be here. Frank, kind of a slow start for Wesley. Obviously, they did go out uh, to, a, uh, to a big win against Hobart on Saturday. Uh, but that slow start, I, I could think of a few factors, and I want you to kind of just put them in order for me. One, uh, the weather. Two, Hobart's pretty good. Three, uh, you know, Wesley hasn't played a whole lot of good Division Three teams in a while. Uh, what's your take on where those kind of factors kind of weigh in here? Pat, I'd say it was in the order of weather. Hobart's pretty good, and Wesley hasn't played teams recently uh, in a D3 uh, category, or at least uh, good teams in a D3 category. Uh, and the reason I say that, the weather started picking up pretty badly in the late first quarter area of that game and kind of stayed that way through the middle of the third quarter. That allowed Hobart to dig in defensively and didn't allow Joe Callahan really to throw deep. The weakness for Hobart on their defense is their secondary pretty much. And as such, uh, with Fajri Jackson out and Matt Craig still banged up, though he was playing, uh, passes that were going downfield were pretty much the bread and butter for Wesley late in the game that they couldn't really capitalize on from that first and third quarter zone. And that's what kept it close. But Hobart's very good. Their defense really was what got them to where they were all season long. We were always talking about uh, in Liberty League play that their offense hadn't had real challenges along the way. It didn't seem like or at least great performances that you could point to. It was always the defense. And so you could see again yesterday that they are national caliber defense. It's if you look at the numbers, you know, they tell a story. The leading receiver had 17 yards. I think Patrick Conley had 76 yards passing on the day for Hobart. 
And so obviously things were not great offensively for Hobart most of the day. Wesley, though, very, very good team. And uh, it should be interesting to see where they go if the weather uh, stays stable this coming weekend. Your impressions of Callahan, Steve Caduso, you know, Boehner, the, the big names on offense for the Wolverines. It takes a little while, it seems like, to get them warmed up, but they have just pure speed in the uh, receiving core. Uh, Callahan is everything you read about and see every week, pretty much statistically. When you see him in person, you realize he is a field general. And he just, I mean, I, when I saw this, the number of yards he passed for yesterday, even though I was there, you know, going play by play on that game, uh, you know, over 300 yards passing, it didn't feel like it, but you just felt like this guy has that consistency throughout a game. Yeah, maybe he got some yardage and chunks uh, and a couple of long pass plays, but he's just really in control of his team offensively, and that's a great asset to have there. Uh, you know, you look at the Kevin Burks of the world. I think Joe Callahan has that ability just as much to be that field general out there, and yesterday was, again, proof of it, especially late in the game. In a close game, I didn't know how they perform since they're not as battle-tested in that uh, close-game scenario in the third quarter. But in the fourth quarter, they came roaring out there and scored, what, uh, three touchdowns pretty easily. Tyree Coleman, obviously, was uh, had, a, had a really big day while he was in there. And, uh, you know, he might be the best defensive end in Division Three. They might not see somebody else quite of his caliber over the course of the uh, final couple weeks here. But... Um you know, it, is that a that has to be a little bit troubling that they weren't at least able to contain him a little better. I mean, he obviously he had six tackles for loss, pair of sacks, uh, forced fumble, and he didn't even uh, get through the entire game. Coleman is a special player, and they may not see another Tyree Coleman. To be honest with you, uh, in terms of the out and out ability, size, speed, agility, he has. It's. You know, as a Union College guy, uh, we had to see him for four years uh, when I did games for Union, and you just always hated that game on your schedule. The name that always come up was Tyreek Coleman for that reason. And so when I saw him yesterday playing the way he did against Wesley, I wasn't surprised by it. He's uh, what I would call a stand-up defensive end. Uh, he stands up more often than he's down in you know a set position, and that allows off pretty quickly you don't see many guys doing that these days as consistently as he does and he's just he has a sense of where the ball is at all times so I wouldn't say it worries me because honestly who was able to contain him this season shouldn't be too much cause for concern yes the offensive line uh, might need to do a little bit better on that you know against the Mount Union for instance obviously this coming weekend but Ty Tyree Coleman is that kind of player he is a possibly pro football caliber we'll see what happens with that as uh, the draft comes along in a few months or so. Well, certainly pro football somewhere, if not necessarily on Sundays in the NFL. Frank, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Pat. Wesley faces Mount Union, which I think you might uh, say had the other interesting quarterfinal on Saturday, at least one of the, the most interesting ones in uh, defeating John Carroll by the score of 36 to 28. Uh, Mount Union and John Carroll, you know, going down essentially to the wire again. Uh, you know, John Carroll did not really have the ball in the final minutes with a, with a chance to tie as uh, Mount Union did a nice job of running out the clock. And we'll talk with Mark Grossman, who's the uh, color guy for uh, Mount Union Radio, uh, more in depth about this game in just a couple of minutes, Keith. But, uh, you know, another game in which... Um, yeah, you know, let's see. Let's uh, run the things down. Uh, John Carroll's run game kind of shut down. Uh, you know, uh, Kevin Burke found pretty much every receiver he wanted to, threw the ball really well. Um, and in the end, even though uh, Mountain Union only had the ball for about 24 minutes, it was uh, more than enough to win it. I, I thought what was interesting, Keith, uh, was I think the second quarter of this game when uh, uh, Mountain Union was up 14 nothing. Um, and then uh, John Carroll in the uh, second quarter comes back with a couple of back-to-back -back touchdowns to tie it, and then it gets kind of wild from there until halftime. Yeah, there were there was a a portion about a minute and a half late in the uh, in the second quarter where it goes from a fourteen-all game to uh, to twenty-eight twenty-one Mount Union going into the half, and uh, they, they just traded touchdowns really quickly, two plays two plays, five plays, and it, it was all wild. I, I thought, you know, generally from this this one, it followed the blueprint of these, the the John Carroll Mount Union games of late, uh, really since Tom Arth took over. Um, John Carroll falls behind by a couple scores, 
come gets back in the game at this time. And this time they tied it at 14. They had a tied at 21. Um, they were within one score late in the game, had the ball. And, and when they kicked it away, Pat, at that point you mentioned, um, they had two timeouts left and there were between three and four minutes left on the clock. Uh, Tom Arthur had said he was real confident in his defense. The defense had been the, 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 the driver of everything all season, which I thought was interesting because we talked so much about, about Mark Myers and Tommy Michaels and, and Greenwood and Zach Strippy and the, all the talent they have on offense. Um, so he felt comfortable kicking it away. And uh, Burke, it, it really, I don't want to say it was all Kevin Burke, but it was, it was, the the Kevin Burkeiest plays because he uh, was a third uh, third and four tucks it and runs and then the other one was about about ten yards he needed and uh, just took off right up the middle and was able to get the yardage that they needed and that helped Mount Union nail it out and kill the clock great game great crowd um, John Carroll finishes the season eleven and two with with two one score losses to Mount Union uh, I, I know you prompted me to talk just about that crazy part before the half but I think the whole game uh fit the pattern of 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 the way these these teams have played each other now for the past two seasons if you're uh if you're looking to keep track of this at home if you're playing the uh drinking game with your coffee this morning uh Kevin Berkeyist would be the uh it would probably be the made-up word of the podcast and that would be spelled b-u-r-k-i-e-s-t and yes it's a capital b yeah I'm, I'm just gonna nod and agree with you on that Going back to the thing you said about the defense, um, you know, it uh, Mount Union held to 3.6 yards a carry. Uh, John Carroll, of course, uh, averaging under a yard a carry, and not a lot of teams are, are uh, capable of running successfully against Mount Union. But, uh, you know, John Carroll has done a really good job of, uh, of holding Mount Union in check, and I think even more so in this game than in the first meeting. Yeah, much more so. John Carroll finished with uh, with 24 yards rushing, and, uh, and and Tommy Michaels had been a problem for them in the first time they played, and, and Mountain Union was much better against the run. I tried to watch uh, as much of uh, that game as I could, but I'd be lying if I told you um, I figured out the X's and O's of, of why they were so much better against the run this time. Um, but the, the weird thing about John Carroll is they, you know, you can – they can be made one-dimensional, and, and Mark Myers is, is so good, and uh, and some of his targets are so good that they were able to stay in the game anyway. And now we welcome in Mark Grossman, color analyst for Mount Union Radio Broadcast on WDPN 1310 AM. He helped call Mount Union's 36-28 win over John Carroll on Saturday. So, Mark, Mount Union has played two close games with John Carroll now in the last four weeks. What has Mount Union seen in these two games that it needs to work on in order to get the right trophy here in the next couple of weeks? Well, I think the biggest thing from the first game um, was the offensive line play. John Carroll in that first contest really owned the line of scrimmage. Uh, honestly, to I think a lot of our surprise, uh, the last time we've seen a defensive line control Mount Union like that would have been Whitewater, which really was the only team all of last season that uh, controlled the, the game up front against Mount. Uh, now, the second time around, Mount really shored that up did a much better job protecting Kevin Burke. Uh, still couldn't run the ball with much regularity. Um, when they did run it, it was in passing situations where they tripped John Carroll up. But uh, they did a much, much better job the second time around getting a clean pocket to Kevin Burke to find his receivers. Well, and so that leads into my next question. I mean, Burke ran pretty well versus John Carroll the first time around, but uh, I mean, statistically held in check on Saturday, just eight yards rushing on 10 carries. Is, is the, are the stats telling the truth there? Or is it more of a case of him having enough success finding Namdar and Scott and Wilkinson that he didn't uh, feel the need to take it himself? He really didn't run Burke a lot by design. Um, the first game they did, he was a big piece of the running game. Uh, in the second one, they tried to run it with Mitchell and Logan Nemeth, the backup running back. Uh, they are a little banged up at tailback. Uh, Brandon Williams has been lost for the season. But uh, in the second go-around, uh, John Carroll did a much better job, I think, of containing Burke in the pocket. Uh, but Kevin was Kevin. He moved around, made the plays when they needed him. Uh, John Carroll did a pretty good job in the secondary. There were a few times Kevin had to get rid of the football or took a sack, uh, simply because... Um, there's just nobody open. The offensive line uh, just you know, held out as long as they could, and the pocket would collapse around them. Now, come crunch time, uh, Kevin does what Kevin does. I can't think of another cl clutch player 
bigger and better than Kevin Burke in the last few minutes of the football game. Uh, Mountain needed a couple first downs. They'd run out the clock. And on third down and nine, uh, the first time they'd run it all day was a quarterback draw that Kevin picked up 11 yards. Again, next set of downs, third and five, a little uh, read option. Burke keeps it around left end, picks up six, ball game. Uh, so in the biggest of spots, so he didn't have a great day running the ball statistically, but when they needed it, he got out of the pocket, he made the plays with his legs, and that's what he brings to that offense that uh, most quarterbacks don't. You mentioned a little banged up uh, in the run game. Uh, how's uh, B.J. Mitchell? I noticed he didn't get a lot of carries either. He's been uh, nursing uh, an injury. He, he went out a few weeks ago, um, two weeks ago against W.J. Uh, he played a few snaps, and then that was it. Um, and I think part of I think he could have played more Saturday. Uh, but Logan Nemeth, a little bigger body, a little thicker when it comes to pass blocking. Um, when it's an obvious passing situation, you'll see Nemeth more often than Mitchell anyway, especially with an active defensive line that John Carroll had. And I think, too, that played into the success that Nemeth had running the ball because by uh, traditional statistics, when he's in, he's blocking. Um, when he was in a lot ye- uh, yesterday, he got a couple of carries in what appeared to be passing situations, and I think it broke the tendency that John Carroll was ready for. Uh, one of those, a big uh, 18-yard touchdown run, that there's just a huge hole up the middle. Uh, it was pretty obvious that the defensive line had forgotten about the running game and was just trying to get upfield to get the burden. Uh, last year around this time, Mark, the Mount Union defense basically imploded, gave up 151 points in the final three games. How's the defense looking to you at this point? Uh, I think the biggest difference defensively, not so much personnel, is just experience. Uh, coaching staff coming back to their second go-around, you got to remember that, yes, Vince was the defensive coordinator under Larry, uh, but his first chance as a head coach, a whole new situation, uh, a very young team overall last year, and though many of those guys are back, uh, they're playing with more confidence. There's been less breakdowns mentally this season than last season. Uh, now, John Carroll did hit him last week with two big pass plays, uh, one the 75-yard touchdown and another one that Mount ended up uh, stiffening in the red zone and keeping them from scoring. Um, but those were broken plays, scrambles by Mike Myers, and then somebody just got loose in the secondary. Uh, overall, the Mount Union defense is very similar to what it's been in the past, very athletic, a little undersized, but playing with more consistency this year. Uh, and I think it all starts between the years. Uh, There's a little more season. Pat, I love that we were able to bring in some guests uh, for this podcast who have seen these teams more consistently week to week. It, uh, it, it's such great insight to, to have somebody who knows, for instance, what, which week uh, B.J. Mitchell was injured. You know, to go back to those, those Kevin Burke plays, um, Mark said, uh, said 11 yards on third, on third and nine and six yards on third and four. The box score actually says 10 on third and nine and five on third and four. And the only reason I point, out, point that out is because when Mount Union needs a play, Kevin Burke gets them exactly what they need, one yard more than they needed both times. Both plays, the ball was in his hands. The, the, he mentioned the quarterback draw was by design. The other read option play, obviously he has an option to hand it off, but pretty good chance he, he's, he's keeping it, if he, if he, especially if he sees what he's, he's reading. You, you go now to Kevin Burke, uh, in semifinal round last year, uh, went down the field against North Central when Mount Union was trailing. They scored in three plays with about a minute and a half left to, to win that one. You go back two years, uh, uh, semifinal round in alliance. Mary Harden-Baylor was up two touchdowns. It brings them back, tie the game. They score with five seconds left to, uh, to win that one. This, this kid has been clutch. When the games have been close, the only time he really, really hasn't been, of course, is uh, is against Whitewater in the Stag Bowl last year. Uh, there was no opportunity opportunity to be clutch because that one got away from Mount Union pretty badly in the second half. But um, as we think about the way this this Wesley game may go, um, it's as loaded a Wesley team as we've seen, and I know we've said that over and over again. And and, and they don't get to make good on that promise unless they they win an alliance this week and on the other hand you know Mount Union again what they always do have a great quarterback who's efficient an offensive line who keeps them clean a defense who's pretty much spent all season um, you know mopping the floor with its opponents but what Mount Union's done this year 
and this is to John, this is, I guess, thanks to John Carroll. Um, they've had to, they've had to grind a couple of games out earlier in the process than they normally have to. And then we get to see Kevin, Kevin Burke show that clutch gene. I think if you've tuned out uh, Mount Union over the course of the past 11 and a half months, you know, just kind of hope they would go away. Just, you know, I don't want to hear about Purple Powers, you know, the first 13 weeks of the season. Here's what you've missed. Uh, first of all, it's uh, that part that Mark Grossman said uh, a few minutes ago about the the defense uh, starting between the years, that they're a year older, a little bit more experienced. You know, as I mentioned, we saw uh, Mount Union get torched a few times in the final three games of the season last year, and uh, it remains to be seen, obviously, how that uh, plays out here down the stretch. But the other thing is that um, this Mount Union team last year in the playoffs uh, was, um, you know, first of all, during the regular season, the receiving core was led by Luke Meacham. He's a guy who on Saturday uh, could uh, very easily be described as their fourth best receiver. Uh, Sherman Wilkinson came on a little bit in the playoffs last year, and he had a pair of touchdowns on Saturday, and he had you know probably the third most targets or even the fourth most targets on Saturday because it's Roman Namdar and it's Tori Scott. And if you haven't heard us talk, uh, if you haven't heard us mention these names, uh, again, maybe you've just been kind of tuning out when we've talked about Mountain Union, but those are the two guys who are making a big difference uh, for them on offense this season. Burke is Burke. Um, and he's just as Berkey as he uh, as he has been, but now he's got uh, two really top notch receivers to throw to again. And, and as we've mentioned, those guys both recruited to Mount Union as quarterbacks, but too talented to keep on the sideline once they realized that that uh, as as you know Burke won that job as a sophomore, they figured out ways to uh, to, to get them back in the lineup and. and um, Namdar, of course, uh, missed a year last season, but had actually, if you go way back, he had actually was ahead of Kevin Burke on the depth chart at one point. And, and when Burke emerged uh, as the starter at, at the beginning of his sophomore season, uh, you know they've they've never looked back from having a, a from the offensive leadership standpoint. You, you did bring up a good point though about um, Vince and having a young staff. Almost all the the Mountain Union coaches are either one of, one of two things: young guys who have played for Mountain Union, or longtime coaches who who have been around the program for a long time. And, and um, as much as they like to embrace the 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 machine, that being their their motto, and as much as Whitewater. We'd like to assume that you know they just re reload every year. Each team comes with with its own set of of challenges. They don't just automatically get back to the stag bowl. Uh, the, they have they have weaknesses. They all these teams are beatable, as we saw on Saturday with Wartburg uh, taking that thirty three sixteen lead against Whitewater. And so um, th- these teams aren't instant perfection. They had they go through ups and downs. They have flaws. They they have things where you know as as we talked about with with Mount Union's defense they've they've come a long way since the Stag Bowl last season and it's going to be a huge huge challenge on Saturday against Wesley and you know Wesley's got flaws of its own for all the things it does well and so uh, for them you know that the, this is now their sixth trip to the semifinals and and each other trip to the semifinals has ended with a loss either against Whitewater or Mount Union. All right, so Keith, um, you know the the big weapon, obviously for uh, for Wesley on offense is uh, Steve Caduso. We've talked about him a lot. Um, who would be the who are the other guys who need to step up? Obviously, if you're going to have multiple uh, threats in the passing game, uh, who are the other guys that they uh, they need to look at on Saturday? Well, uh, Bryce Shade is is their other really good wide receiver, and uh, he he's the uh, I guess the other guy who who has to have a, a, a pretty decent game, especially if they if Mount Union decides they want to pay extra attention uh, to to trying to cover Kadosu. But the thing about Wesley's offense, and this has been true throughout the years, is they don't even when they have star guys, whether it's Larry Larry Beavers or um, you know they, they've they've had star running backs in the past, they've always rotated a bunch of guys in, and so they'll give carries to more than one running back. They'll give it to their good players. In different ways, whether it's you know uh, jet sweeps or you know bubble screens or all, whatever kind of different um, creative ways they they can stretch the defense, whether they stretch them horizontally, whether they're stretching them down the field, whether they're making them defend um, the flat and the and the deep corners, they will um, they will make the defense work, and and that's what's what's fun about them. So as much as we we talk about. Um, 
Kadosu, Wesley would probably be fine if if Mountain Union says, well, we're going to devote extra attention to this because it's going to open up some of the other stuff that they do really well. Just to recap that that game from last year, Joe Callahan was 35 of 52 passing for 633 yards, eight passing touchdowns. He was picked off four times, uh, especially in the first quarter that uh, put uh, Wesley in that big hole. Uh, uh, Kudosu had 11 catches for 273. Bryce Shade, you mentioned, did three for 102. Uh, Jamar Baynard, he's still around seven catches for 74. Kyle George, the tight end, six catches for 74 yards. And then two guys who aren't aren't there, especially uh, Jeremiah Howe, who had a, a big game for Wesley last year. But a lot of those guys who, you know, had big games on offense are still around. Yeah, Jamar Baynard, the the running back, is uh, is still their their main guy. He had he had twenty one carries against Hobart, um, and Kyle George, as you mentioned, a big big threat uh, at the tight end position. So uh, Wesley's got a diverse offense, and I, I think when we get to this level, you know whether it's quarterfinals, whether it's semifinals, it really does come down to the line play, and and that's a hard thing for us to to analyze and talk about unless we spend a lot of time really watching these teams closely because um you know we can we can watch the game for a couple minutes and you figure out wow that, that wide receiver is pretty fast that wide receiver is six foot five um that quarterback can really throw it but but it's, it, it takes a little more um i guess nuanced eye to uh to see how how good the the lines are and for me i've always fallen into the trap of believing that really good teams you know from one part of the country against really good teams from the other part of the country they automatically just match up well against each other because their linemen are are equally big well there's a there's a little more to it than that it's uh you know it's the ability of a line to work together to execute the game plan the um a lot uh, the 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 get off the quickness i mean we saw as you mentioned tyree coleman um give Wesley's line a lot of trouble on Saturday. I, th- I think Frank Rossi's probably right. They won't see anybody quite that talented the rest of the season, but someone like that can 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 cause havoc in a game. We saw Alex Hoff uh, for Linfield. He had five sacks against Widener. One guy um, can, can really make a huge difference at this level, and, and line play is going to be a big factor on Saturday in both games. Big role for Linfield this postseason, and it continued on Saturday with a 45-7 win at Widener. We welcome in Ryan Carlson, a former Linfield player who runs CatDomeAlumni.com and is also the uh, team video nerd. Thanks for joining us, Ryan. Hey, thanks, Pat. Really appreciate it. Hey, first thing I have to ask is how's the team's state of mind? Because, uh, uh, you know, obviously with everything that went on uh, at Linfield uh, a few weeks ago, um, it sure looks as if this team is uh, kind of on a mission right now. Uh, Pat, it's a tight group. Um, you know, being, being I'm not around them every day, uh, being the team videographer, but on the weekends and and had a chance to travel with them a little bit. It's a very tight group of guys that have a lot of care uh, and affection for one another. And obviously, Parker's on the forefront of their minds, and uh, he had so many friends on the team, uh, and also you know just his teammates in general. So it's a it's a tight knit group of guys that are playing hard for each other. Uh, in the playoff games where there have been ups and downs, they've been really steady. Uh, Sidelines been really steady, supporting each other, having each other's back uh, the whole way through these past three weeks. Maybe a bit of a slow start, at least for the first possession and a half on Saturday, but then uh, things started rolling, picked off Seth Klein a couple of times. And, um, you know, I this is a game that I tuned out at halftime because it was really not a close game, and it certainly uh, didn't finish that way. But, you know, what would be the what would be the big takeaway? What should fans know about uh, Linfield based on Saturday? Uh, you know, a few things. It was a great team win in all three phases. Uh, our coverage teams were great. A lot of people haven't really kicked off to Widener's. Uh, All-American receiver, who's also their their, their punt return man and kick return man. Uh, Linfield, uh, as Coach Smith said, threw their fastball and special teams that uh, were kicking the ball deep off to him, and the special teams unit did a great job in following them up for the most day. He was a fantastic player, but the Cats did a good job there. I thought Linfield, the defensive line, and uh, did a great job of applying pressure to what uh, Klein and our defensive backs also had a fantastic day in coverage and uh, locking things down and not giving up any sort of big plays. And catches that were made, uh, not a lot of yards up catch. You know, when there were catches made, there was basically that was it. Uh, the Cats defensive backs did a good job in stopping people in their tracks. And Linfield offense 
you know, Widener does a great job on and run defense. They were committed to stopping the Linfield run. They slowed it down the run multiple times at Linfield, even though the Cats keep digging away at it. Uh, but the Cats made plays in the passing game. Uh, you know, there's a number of receivers, Charlie Poppin, Evan Peterson, Colin Nelson, uh, where Rip Riddle would put the ball up there and say, go make the play. And our receivers made plays all day long uh, against the Widener secondary. Yeah, so Riddle is obviously uh, was a was a big part, if not almost the, maybe the majority of their run game uh, statistically. Um, but you say that's really uh, that that's Widener selling out to stop the the run defense and not something that's uh, more endemic to the way Linfield plays ball this year. I thought so. It's a combination of both. So Widener, you know, statistically is the number one rush defense in the country, and they did a good job being physical up front with their linebackers and defensive line. Uh, to the Cats event, but that didn't stop Linfield from keep on trying to pound away at the run. And Linfield did have success at times running the football, uh, but it really did set up the play-action pass, which Linfield's been doing all year long, um, where, you know, we give a fake to one of the running backs, whether it's Tavon Willis or Spencer Payne. And uh, Sam has been on a roll, and he has great chemistry with our receiving core, and uh, that has continued, and it continued again today with those five touchdown passes. Uh, Linfield as a program is kind of a, a team that's been all over the map, and I say that actually literally rather than figuratively because uh, obviously a, a big uh, postseason run in terms of mileage, winning at Mary Hardin-Baylor last week, winning at Widener on Saturday, then have to head to uh, Whitewater uh, coming up next week. Uh, it always seems like uh, the team that comes out of the Northwest could get sent on this you know, vast, long ride. How is the team dealing with, uh, you know, with uh, being on the road and that sort of thing? It was something that the, the program expected after the loss to Willamette. Basically, Linfield has been in playoff mode since the week seven, uh, the game seven loss to Willamette, where you lose to Puget Sound, you lose to Pacific, your season's over. So the Cats have really been in playoff mode since then. And we pretty much knew that after beating Pacific, that we'll probably get a home game against Chapman, which we did. And after that, you're on the road. Um, whether you like it or not, you just got to go and deal with it and embrace it. And Coach Smith has done a wonderful job of getting the most of it. Like Friday, instead of just having the team practice and then putting them away in the hotel room and bobbling them up, he made the most of it. You know, we're out in the West Coast, we're out in Philly. Well, hey, let's go ahead and, uh, you know, head on down to uh, the museum steps and do the Rocky steps. We got a great tour of uh, Independence Hall, and um, we were in downtown Philly for about three, four hours uh, checking out some historical sites. and. Uh, did a walkthrough at Widener on the way back to uh, Wilmington to the hotel, and I really had a full day of being together as a group, and uh, got the most out of it, and just uh, made it more than about football. And uh, that's been Linfield's uh, basically their story all season. This team is—it's more about football. It's about uh, a program of guys, uh, a college, a community in McMinnville and Woodenville, and uh, really, it's been. Um, a lot of pain and tragedy and hurt, but at the same time within that, it's a group of guys that are playing for each other, representing themselves and Parker Moore and his family, and uh, just been on a on a roller coaster ride of emotions. Last a super group, Pat. Last question, and I'll let you go. Apparently, the most controversial thing that came out of Saturday was that Chip Kelly was on the side of you guys and not on the uh, on the team in Philly. Uh, you, Chip Kelly wasn't there, right? That, that's that didn't happen, right? Chip Kelly flew through there for like 10 seconds. Uh, I mean, he wasn't like hanging out after practice. Uh, I mean, we, brought, we were there for two and a half hours. Chip Kelly was there for a minute at the most. <laughs> I mean, it's so overblown. It's ridiculous. Yeah, and not, and, at, you know, and not at the game, right? No, not. Yeah, I don't think. I think that Coach Smith was joking about that. He wasn't at the game. Um, you know, he just, he just did a blow by a team from Oregon. I mean, said hello, and, and off he went. So, you know, that's just. Uh, pretty pretty well overblown, um, but you know, Linfield was there to do a Friday walkthrough, and and C- Coach Kelly saying hello gave uh, the Wildcats no sort of advantage, and uh, and the outcome today. <laughs> funny stuff, Ryan. Thanks. Yeah, uh... it is it is funny stuff, but uh, that was really nice of uh, Co- Coach Kelly and the uh, the Eagles organization to allow Linfield to have a place to uh, to basically do a run through for a couple hours. Sounds good. Ryan, thanks for uh, taking the time this evening. We appreciate it. And uh, you'll see Keith at uh, Whitewater next weekend. Absolutely. Uh, thanks. Thanks for everything, Pat. Thanks for everything that you guys do at d3football.com. Ryan didn't seem very happy to hang out at Whitewater next week. Uh, you guys did mention the, uh, the Mike Kelly, Chip Kelly thing. I thought that was pretty bizarre as well. First of all, it, it's, um, it's, it's Philadelphia. You know, if, if 
Linfield didn't practice at NovaCare. They would have practiced at one of the 20 or 25 colleges in the area. I don't think that was a, a major favor. Second of all, Chip Kelly's from Oregon. Linfield's from Oregon. Obviously, they ha they have some connections. And uh, you know, as as much as I like D3 and the Eagles, um, I, I didn't I didn't I thought that was just the complaining about that was kind of bizarre. Um, you know, Mike Kelly was was. Great to me last week um, as far as chatting with him after the game, after the Christopher Newport game. So I, I don't know even if that quote, maybe that was kind of half in jest. I'm not really sure, but it, it definitely got blown up and it, and it uh, got the Widener-Linfield game a lot. Uh, it, got, it got it some run uh, on some places where otherwise, uh, otherwise it wouldn't have. So uh, maybe it wasn't bad after all. One thing that, um, that, that Ryan Carlson didn't uh, get to talk about a whole bunch um, – because the offense was so impressive uh, on Saturday was how well Linfield's defense played. And, and for, you know, it's easier for me to make this comparison because I saw Widener's offense play um, the week before I, I got to watch a bunch of Widener, uh, you know, put up 44 points on Delaware Valley back in week 11. And that offense was prolific. It was, it, it looked the way Wartburg's offense looked in the first half against Whitewater. And, and this all ties together with the Chip Kelly stuff, because with that, that wide offense, when it gets rolling, that's what it looks like. It looks like uh, the Eagles offense. It can be, um, you know, they're, they're running inside outside zone. They're running pass plays uh, that are screens. They're running plays down the middle of the field, down down the the perimeter of the field, um, and they're doing it all without a huddle as quickly as they can. You know, Widener had, had 25 minutes of uh, time of possession is probably pretty normal for them. What Linfield did to them was was take them out of the game pretty quickly. And and that game that game started kind of bizarre where Linfield got a turnover. Widener had a goal line stand, and you, and you figure Widener. Uh, would be able to uh, to to build build some momentum off having that goal line stand in the first few minutes of the game, but instead they had two quick turnovers, and that's uh, that's credit to Linfield's defense. Um, Linf Widener was uh, was two of eighteen on third down, uh, one of four on fourth down, one hundred seventy three yards of total offense. Linfield had seven sacks, and uh, and those two turnovers, just a really really uh, good all around. Uh, defensive day for Linfield. You, you know, Ryan mentioned the special teams and offense, and they were outstanding as well. One of those semi-rare occasions, probably not as rare as it should be in D3, but it was one of those occasions where the the third round game was was a not as not quite as tough as the second round game was for Linfield, where they had to squeak by uh, second ranked Mary Harden Baylor. Let me ask you. Um... Compare Anthony Davis, the you know the key wide receiver for Widener, to the guys Linfield's going to be facing on uh, Saturday in uh, Jake Kumaro, Justin Howard. Yeah, not not very similar at, at all. Actually, Davis is, is a little is kind of a, I guess a, a hybrid of the two. If you consider Kumaro kind of a big big body receiver who goes up, who's great at going up to get the ball and in. in, in um, Justin Howard as more of a you know a guy who's better operating from the slot or in small spaces. Um, Davis is a little bit of both. He's great with the ball in his hands. They they'll find ways uh, to get him the ball. He's very athletic, and um, he's basically diced up almost every team that's faced him except for uh, Linfield in in the quarterfinals and and two years ago Mount Union in the quarterfinals. Well, we've talked uh, a little bit about the uh, Whitewater-Wartburg game already, but let's pull in uh, Josh Smith to get a little more on that. So, you know, we've been on the record as saying Wartburg is pretty darn good this year, but how much of Saturday's result was Wartburg, and how much of it was, you know, the double bombshell this week that not only was Lance Leipold leaving the uh, team, but the, his four top assistants were as well? Yeah, well, it was definitely a combination of the two. Um, Lance Leipold... Uh, addressed the issue during the post-game uh, press conference, and he said, you know, given the events of the week, um, you know, you'd be concerned that there might be uh, a little bit of a distraction, obviously, that comes with that, and, um, and he thinks it may have played out that way a little bit earlier. Um, the, the players that were in on the press conference um, all gave a seemingly rehearsed, uh, no, there were no distractions answer in the press conference, and that was kind of to be expected. Um, but as you alluded to, you know, that Warburg team was very, very good. And I think it's doing a disservice to the, the Warburg team to just say, 
Whitewater was distracted. They came out and played really, really well and looked um, really effortless on offense, especially early on in the game. Unfortunately, they just couldn't punch in a touchdown and had to settle for a number of field goals, and that ultimately cost them in the end. It kind of seemed as if uh, if Logan Schrader hadn't gotten hurt that uh, Warburg was going to finish off winning that game. Yeah, and that was really uh, twofold as far as uh, harming the Knights' chance because not only was Logan Schrader out of the game, but then you know you turn to Taylor Jacobsmeyer under center, and now he's not out there catching the ball at receiver. So you know, basically with one injury, you lose your quarterback, you lose your wide receiver, and uh, there wasn't a whole lot going right for Warburg on that series, and they had to punt the ball away pretty quickly. And once uh, Logan got back, you know, it was a pretty valiant effort, but he didn't quite look the same when he came back into the game. Uh, on the other side of the ball, one of the frequent questions kind of uh, for the last, I don't know, maybe six weeks or so has been the, uh, the health of Jake Kumaro. How did he look on Saturday? He, he looked like he was back to normal, and he was asked in the post-game press conference as well, and he said 100%. Um, obviously, he makes a big difference when he's in the game. Uh, you know, he had six catches for 146 yards, a big touchdown in the uh, second half as well. And, you know, he's just a difference maker. He's, he's uh, you know, obviously a big physical guy out there, and he's got great hands and it can make good plays. And, you know, it should be noted he was part of a play that almost cost the Warhawks. I caught a, a, a big, I believe it was a 52-yard reception um, and as he was falling to the ground inside the five-yard line, lost the handle on it, and uh, Warburg recovered and ended a uh, UW-Whitewater scoring opportunity, but obviously Warhawks were able to come back regardless of the uh, turnover there. One of the things that I saw in Warburg the, the couple of times I saw them this season was uh, just their uh, their line plays, uh, both sides, but especially the defensive line. Uh, how did, uh, did, did you guys see that as well on Saturday? How did that play out? Yeah, you know, when Whitewater was struggling on offense, a big part of that was some pressure there. And also, I thought, even on the offensive line, they were getting such a push early on. And um, that was certainly playing an effect on the way the game um, played out. Um, they were able to run the ball very effectively. They were able to pass the ball very effectively. And at one point, uh, Chris Brinkmeyer uh, their left tackle got hurt, and uh, I saw him come back in the game and leave the game another time. Uh, he was trying his best to stay in there, but when he was in the game, uh, Warburg was running really well to the left side, and uh, Brandon Domeyer was getting big chunks of yards, and it seemed to make a pretty big difference when he left the game. So uh, O-line play and line play in general is definitely a big part of this game. And so Linfield comes back to town. Uh, obviously, these are teams that have uh, met in some epic ways in the playoffs. Um, but uh, Whitewater has had its way with Linfield every single time. I think they've all been they've all been pretty competitive games. But I believe Whitewater's come out on top. Yeah, yeah, they they definitely have been a couple of good ones. I, I know there was a, a few um, back here in uh, Whitewater that have uh, I guess really been some memorable ones for Warhawk fans, but. Um, it should be an interesting uh, matchup to see. Uh, you know, obviously Linfield's playing with a lot of momentum, and and uh, Whitewater now has kind of got new life after surviving a, a tough game this week. Pat, so as we think about this Linfield at, at Whitewater matchup, it does bring up the the memories of the the first time the two teams met, that big forty four forty one game back in '05, and and some of the games they've played in between then, but. But most recently, last season, let's not forget that Linfield led in the quarterfinals against Whitewater, 17-0 in the first half of that game last year. Whitewater rallied to win 28-17. They they went down to Mary Harden-Baylor, won by one point in the semifinals, and then went on to crush uh, Mount Union, of course, 52-14 in the Stag Bowl. But Linfield comes into this game, I think, with a lot of confidence, because they, they, you go back to that game from last season uh, wh- where they got off to a, a really strong start. And, um, you know, the what, what got them in that game, they had some turnovers in the third quarter and Whitewater captured the momentum. And, and Whitewater did a really good job of shutting down Linfield's running game, which, uh, which I think they'd pay a little bit more attention to trying to get established this week. That 2009 game, too, was a, another uh, Whitewater comeback in the fourth quarter. 
Uh, Linfield led that game 17-10 early in the fourth quarter, and then uh, Whitewater scored the final 17 points to win that 27-17. Uh, but, you know, in a sense, not uh, not too atypical of Whitewater games, too, because, uh, you know, sometimes they wear you out right away, you know, wear out an inferior opponent in the second quarter, and sometimes it uh, takes till the third or fourth quarter. But, uh, you know, they've, they've done that to... Uh, They've done that to Linfield twice in a row, uh, obviously spanning over several years. I wouldn't say an either team wore out either team the first time around, but the last couple times we've definitely seen the uh, Warhawk defense come around in the third and fourth quarter to finish it off. Yeah, and and you know Linfield has to be be careful about letting itself uh, become one dimensional, relying too much on the pass, especially because there's some some really good ball hawks in the uh, in the. Warhawk secondary this year, obviously led by the name we all know, Brady Gravold, the uh, the the Gallardi Trophy, um, least. Uh, what do we call top ten? If top four are finalists or top ten also finalists? They became semi-finalists this year. Finally, after two years or many years of having two sets of finalists. Okay, yeah, always that always confused me. So Gravold's at least in the top ten. We'll find out pretty soon if he's in the the final four. Uh, he's playing in the final four this week, but he's also not the only DB uh, in that secondary that's any good. There were there were a point in in. Um, in the game with Warburg, where uh, where you know DBs were were pretty frequently knocking passes away, and so um, if Linfield has to has to only throw the ball um, as much as we'd love to to see Sam Riddle drop back and uh, and wing it around, uh, could could be dangerous for Linfield. Yeah, and uh, Warburg did not have Marcus McClin on Saturday, but uh, the guy who replaced him, Dylan Morang, that's a name that's familiar to me too. He's a a guy who's gotten some playing time for the Warhawks. I'm just kind of excited about these these two semifinals in general because of the history that we've we've mentioned between the two of them. If we're if we're not going to get a fresh matchup, you know, Warburg Linfield would have been interesting, something we'd we'd never seen before. Although it would have brought up memories for me of of Lin, Linfield's history with Central, but uh, but but that didn't happen. So we've got Linfield and Whitewater who have a great history together. We've got Mountain Union and Wesley who have a nice history together as well. And um, go back to last season, the sixty two fifty nine game. We've talked about it already on this podcast. Go back to 2011. Uh, Wesley went to Alliance 28-21. That was the team led by by Shane McSweeney. A um, few years before that, there was a game that uh, Wesley only trailed 10-7 in the fourth quarter against Mount Union. And the way Mount Union closed that game out was by removing its quarterback and and putting pulling wide receiver Cecil Shorts, who'd, who'd come to Mount Union as a quarterback, Pull him in, let him run read option, and and they uh, they were able to salt that game away. So when Taylor Jacobs Meyer comes in to replace Logan Schrader, this was necessitated by injury. It immediately brought me back to that moment. And Whitewater still leading by, um, excuse me, Warburg still leading by three at the time. Uh, I thought they were going to try to get away with that, try to just get a couple of first downs, kill some clock, and and let their most um, their best athlete you know, take the snaps at quarterback, but they uh, didn't last very long. They, they did bring the backup in to throw a pass and then they brought Schrader back in and, uh, and it just didn't work out for them. Warper got ever so close to uh, preventing a uh, Whitewater Mount Union matchup. Of course, we could still have that Whitewater hosts Linfield, Mount Union hosts Wesley, and whichever combination we get, I think we're looking forward to a, a really good stag bowl and a, and a couple of really good semifinals after what was a really good uh, quarterfinal week as well in uh, the Division Three football playoffs for 2014. Coming up really quickly is uh, we got all the way into 14 weeks of the season before we got a podcast that flirted with an hour, but we're doing with that uh, today because it was such a big week. Um, but other things that are going on this week, uh, if you haven't seen them already, the all-region team are going to be on the website before noon Eastern time on Monday. So that's the uh, 10th annual D3football.com all-region teams. And that leads into our all-American team process, which will be announced before the game at the Stag Bowl in Salem, Virginia on uh, December 19th. So stick around for all that. We had almost 1,000 players nominated this year. So thank you to everybody who nominated and also the people who were uh, selected to vote and pass in ballots on that. Uh, of course, on Tuesday, we expect to find out who the uh, Galar 
Lombardi Final Four will be, uh, and those four will be joining us in Salem. We'll have uh, the live broadcast of the Gallardi Trophy Ceremony uh, in conjunction with the YD3 show produced by Dave McHugh. So I uh, have that on uh, Wednesday night in Salem coming up. Uh, of course, not this Wednesday, but the Wednesday following. And uh, we have, of course, Road to Salem features throughout the course of the week. We'll have our triple take predictions for the uh, national semifinal games on Friday morning, heading into Saturday's national semifinals, which you can watch online on at ES on ESPN3. And then they will be re-aired, or I guess technically aired for the first time on ESPNU during the uh, course of the week, if you want to catch up on them. Say, perhaps that you're at one of those games and you want to watch the other one. I could certainly understand that. Uh, I'll probably be doing the same thing with my DVR later in the week uh, to watch the other game. I will be in Alliance, Ohio, along with Ryan Tips. We'll be covering the Wesley Mount Union game. Keith, as we mentioned earlier, will be in Whitewater, Wisconsin, where it will be Linfield at the University of Wisconsin Whitewater. So thank you for uh, sticking with us throughout this podcast and throughout the season, down to four teams, uh, three of whom we could have guessed back in August. In fact, almost all of us guessed three teams correctly in August in our kickoff predictions. And that is just the way Division Three football has been this year. So that's what we've got. We've got Linfield, we've got Whitewater, we've got Wesley, and we've got Mountain Union. So for Keith, I'm Pat Coleman. This is the Around the Nation podcast.